Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for your word. We ask now that you would show us the face of Christ once again and how when we submit to him as our Lord and Savior in faith and repentance, we do stand before you righteous and made right with you. So we ask, Father, that you would speak again to our hearts, that you would attend the proclamation of your word, and that through it you would build up the faith of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans is certainly like a theological textbook, and we've already seen great and vital truths regarding God and ourselves as they are laid out to us through through logic and example. And we've seen things like the, the universal sinfulness of humanity and the just wrath of God against all people because of our sin. And we've also, though, seen God's love and his mercy through justification, which is achieved not through our individual efforts, but by God's gracious work on our behalf in Christ Jesus. And in him, of course, we are declared righteous. We have the righteousness we need to stand before holy God and enjoy his blessings forever. And Paul has made clear that this, this justification being made right with God, we receive only by faith in Christ. That's it. And that is wonderful news. It's the good news. It's, it's, it's the gospel. There is no other gospel by which we can be saved apart from God's work of grace in Christ. And so if you are a Christian this morning, you have this great joy, this great peace of the gospel. But sometimes, I think we would all admit this, that the gospel 
as great as it is and as good as it is, seems kind of disconnected from the rest of our life. And what I mean by that is, is sometimes we wonder, well, yes, it's true, it's wonderful, this hope that God has given us, but what difference does it make right now in my life, in my family? How does it help me with my relationship with my brother or my sister, my mom, my dad, my children? How does it help me be a better dad or mom in raising kids? How does it affect me now? How does it help me deal with all the hard times, the suffering that I still experience in this life? And we ask those questions because oftentimes we're tempted to think of the gospel as merely theoretical truth, merely a future hope, a way to heaven. But oh, the gospel is far more than that. While it is the only way to enjoy God's ultimate blessings in the future, in his new creation, the gospel isn't merely an abstract future hope. It has present and very real consequences. It is good news because it is good now. The kingdom of Christ is already here and Jesus' victory through the cross has already secured blessings that impact our lives right now in the present. The gospel is a present reality. Justification, that is being made right with God, being declared righteous by faith means something. And that is what Paul is going to show us as he moves forward in his great letter to the Romans. And so starting in chapter 5, we begin to see the present realities of the gospel in our lives. What it means to us now in this moment, how it makes a difference in how you live and think and relate to the world around you. And what we see here in the first 11 verses of Romans 5 is that being justified before God through faith fundamentally changes the way you think about suffering. Paul says in verse 3, we rejoice in suffering. And to understand what that means, we have to dive in first to the big theme that he's getting at in these verses. That is reconciliation with God. What does that mean? Why do we need it? And then we can understand how that impacts the way we see suffering. Because to be reconciled to God means that the suffering that you will experience and that you do experience or probably are experiencing in your life grows into a hope by drawing you closer to God rather than driving you further away from Him. And so to understand this idea of reconciliation, we have to start with the bad news, and that is that all people, as Paul shows here, are enemies of God by nature. So all through this text, we see there is this natural conflict between God and people, his creation. In fact, it starts in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says justification results in peace with God. And we'll look more at that in a moment. But for now, what that means then is that before you were justified to God through Christ, it means you did not have peace with God. 
before you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are at war with God Almighty. The absence of peace is conflict. And that is the natural state of things. That is the natural state of people apart from this justification by faith. There is no peace with God. Where did that conflict begin and who started it? Well, it began all the way back at the beginning of history. And we humans are the ones who started it. The war with God began with an act of rebellion against him. When Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they transgressed, they broke God's law. They were rising up in rebellion, an act of war against him because they wanted to be like him. They wanted to be who he was and have what he had, glory and power over all. And so the first shot in this war with God was fired by humanity. And all of us, because we are all descended from Adam, have continued to fire salvo after salvo against God. We'll see later in Romans 5 that Adam was our representative. He did what we all would have done if we had been there in the garden. And so through him, sin comes upon all of us. We became enemies of God through sin. We're rebels by nature. And contrary to what many people think, the Bible tells us that we are not born into this world as God's friend. We're enemies. In fact, Paul describes us here in this text as being weak, ungodly sinners who are enemies with God. So in verse 6, he says that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Weakness, of course, speaks of inability, the inability to do something, the, the powerlessness to do anything that pleases God to the point of restitution, of, of being made whole, of being reconciled to him, of, of earning that peace that we need and reestablishing it. We are weak. We cannot do it. We can't end the war. We cannot make amends with God. There's no movement on the part of human hearts towards God to find reconciliation because we don't have the ability to even take the first step. There's no desire even in the hearts of people to end this war against God. Also in verse 6, we see Paul describe people by nature as being ungodly. And ungodliness, of course, refers to impiety. It is an ungodly person is a person who refuses to worship God as God. It's a person who refuses to fulfill the very purpose for which they were created. Ungodliness is exactly what Paul described back in Romans 1. He says in Romans 1.21, For although they, all humanity, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so they worship ultimately the creation rather than the Creator. Ungodliness, of course, though, results in ungodly actions. 
Because practice flows from belief. What you believe will influence how you live your life. And that is exactly what happens. Refusing to worship God results in worshiping other things. Ultimately, oneself, which is reflected in this other term Paul uses to describe us as enemies of God. And that is sinners. He says in verse 8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And a sinner, of course, is one who has willfully disobeyed a divine command. A sin, a sin is that, that wedge that is driven between us and God and keeps us from knowing Him and enjoying Him and His blessings. Sin is an, an act of war, an active act of war against God. It is doing violence against the very will of God prescribed for you in His law. So when we sin... It is like we strike a blow against the very face of God Himself. And that makes us, by nature, as Paul says, enemies of God. Verse 10, before we're reconciled back to God, we are His enemies. And and being an enemy implies Hostility. Hostility towards God is what characterizes a person who is his en- enemy. In fact, we get a good picture of that with, with poetic clarity in Psalm 2. And it, it portrays this, this hostility, this enmity that we have as humanity against God on a global scale. As the, David the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is the warfare that humanity is waging against God. The nations are raging. The peoples are plotting. All peoples. And then he speaks of the kings of the earth, the leaders, the rulers taking counsel together. A council of war against the Lord and against the anointed, against His Christ. And they're saying, let's burst their bonds asunder. Meaning, let's break His law. Let's cast it aside. We don't want it anymore. Let us wage war against God. And cut any cord that ought to bind us to Him. That's the warfare that the kingdom of this world is waging and has been waging since the beginning of sin in this world. And everyone that is born in this world is by nature part of the kingdom of that world and thus an enemy of God. And it influences the way we live, the way we think, and the way we think about things, including suffering, especially suffering. Here's the thing, when you are an enemy of God, when you are not in a right relationship with Him, when you suffer, this is at least how most people view suffering, they see it as, if there is a God, that God must hate me. People think of suffering as being God's hatred. Or at the very least, His indifference. He doesn't really care about what I'm going through. He lets bad things, hard things, difficult things happen to me. 
When we get sick, we die. We see warfare and injustice all throughout the world and in our own lives personally. And all of that must be God's fault because he's allowing it to happen. And people use suffering as the reason to actually wage further war against God. I mean, why would I submit then to uh, submit to and, and worship a God who allows these terrible things to happen in my life? He must hate me. So thinks the enemy of God. But the thing is, is we do not suffer in this life because God is waging war against us. That's not it at all. We suffer because we are God's enemies. We are the sinners. We have rebelled against Him. We have made Him our enemy. And the result of that is the pain and the sorrow that we see in this world and experience in our lives. We see that in the very curse that resulted from that first act of rebellion against God. So God says to Eve, in that curse, you will have pain in childbearing. Something that is to be a source of joy and happiness in life also carries with it now, because of sin, pain and sorrow and suffering. And to Adam, God says that the work that you do to provide for yourself and your family is now going to be full of pain. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard because of your sinful rebellion. There will be thorns and thistles to contend with, things that cause pain, things that make life difficult. And so all the miseries of this life, from Viruses to cancers to dangers and perils, heartbreaks and sorrows come because as humans we are at war with God. All anxieties and depressions and floods and fires and earthquakes and droughts, all of that exists because as people, humanity, we have gone to war with God. We have made him his enemy and we suffer for it. So we have to ask the question then, How does all that end? How do we see all the wrong that is in this world made right again? It's going to take an act of reconciliation, of bringing us back with God, restored to Him once again. We would need to see this enmity that exists in our hearts removed and brought to an end. We would need peace and for the war to stop. And that is exactly what Paul says God does through Jesus here in Romans 5. God is the one who reconciles us back to him through Jesus Christ. There are three blessings we see Paul, excuse me, highlighting as a result of faith in Christ Jesus. The first we note here is That of peace. Peace with God is a benefit of our justification. That's what he says in verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, made right with God, by receiving and resting on what Jesus did for us, we now have peace with God. The end of hostility, the end of the war. 
The cross, of course, is an act of violence, but the irony of that is that through that act of violence, God ends the violence of our warfare. Jesus is the Son of God, the the second person of the Trinity, and humanity put him to death on the cross. It was our sin that nailed him to that cross, and our faces should be seen in that crowd as they mock him as he suffers for us. But through that act of violence, God is ending our warfare that we wage against Him. He's stopping it for good. He is bringing peace. He is canceling out our sin. He is removing that very thing that has caused the enmity to exist. Because Jesus' death satisfied all the demands of His law which stood against us so that we now can have peace with God. We have a peace treaty that has been signed with the blood of the Lamb of God. The second blessing we see that results from our faith in Christ is access into God's grace. Paul says in verse 2, through him, that is through Jesus, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul is emphasizing here that this is um, a completely fulfilled blessing of God. In other words, it's a blessing we enjoy right now, not just in the future. We have obtained access into God's presence, access into His grace by faith. What does he mean by access? Well, literally, it speaks of a right or opportunity to address someone who is of a higher authority. It's a right to speak to the king. We have through Jesus, through faith in him, access to speak to the highest of all authorities, our God Almighty, our Maker, our Creator. Through Christ, we are led into the very court of the King where we now stand. And notice he says that we stand. The posture we have in this access to grace is one of standing. Now, if a person is guilty and they are dragged before a king, the likelihood is they are not going to stand before him. They're going to fall down and beg for mercy. The beautiful thing is when we do fall before God in mercy and plead the blood of Christ, that blood that's made this peace possible, we are risen to our feet to stand in His presence, in His grace. Because there is now no condemnation. We don't stand before Him condemned and guilty. We stand before Him enjoying His grace. The ungodliness, the sin, the weakness, all that Paul talks about here that keeps us from knowing peace with God is gone. And so we rejoice in the hope with the glory of God, says Paul. Rejoice literally means to boast or to exalt. as to display a higher degree of confidence in the very hope that is ours. This hope or the glory of God of knowing Him and being in His presence. Where there was once trembling weakness, there is now a confident hope 
as we approach the very throne of heaven. And that, of course, is what the author of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 4 when he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So through Christ, believers have peace now with God. And this, we also have access then into His very presence. And all of that brings us to the third blessing, which is reconciliation. We have reconciliation with God. God has ended the enmity between us and Him. So we started the war because we, by nature, as we see, are weak, ungodly sinners. But God has brought it to an end. He has brought about reconciliation. And it was completely His work that did this. There was no movement on our part, no desire on our part to even seek that reconciliation. He had to do it. Normally, when two parties reconcile, you need at least both parties to agree to that reconciliation. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. But in the case of God's reconciliation of sinners, that was not the case. As Paul said again in verse 6, while we were still weak, while we were still unable, there was no desire in us at the right time, at the time God appointed, Christ died for the ungodly. So no ability on our part to seek this reconciliation, but God says, I'm going to do it now. Here comes my son, born as a human, born as a servant, born to die and to live so that I can now be reconciled with you through him. I love that image that the scripture portrays of us before we are united to Christ of being like lost sheep. Because sheep, when they're lost, will just wander through the wilderness. They were never able to find their way home unless a shepherd goes out to seek them and to find them. Which is what God does through the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And Paul then explains how remarkable Jesus' atoning death for us on the cross really is to accomplish just that. He says in verses 7 through 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one wouldn't even dare to die. But God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now this language, it can be a little confusing. It's pretty difficult to translate actually from from Greek into English. So I'll do my best to explain what Paul is getting at here. And what we have to have in mind is that he's talking about the idea of substitution, of someone being in the place of another, a substitutionary death. We get that from that little word for, that little preposition. And in the Greek, that little word for normally or originally meant 
uh, over or above. And it can still mean that in the New Testament, depending on the context. But in the, the, the Greek language, and as Paul employs it here, it's come to know, be known as on the behalf of or in the place of another. And the way it got to mean that is because a soldier would take a shield and he would hold it over or above his head. Why? Because the shield would receive the blow that is directed at him instead of his body. The shield was the substitute. It took the suffering in the place of the soldier to protect him and save him. Now, with that in mind, Paul is implying here that rarely is a person willing to suffer for another decent person like that. It happens, but it's rare. That's what he's saying. In fact, when he says a a righteous here, he doesn't mean righteous in the eyes of God. He means righteous in the eyes of other people. Someone who's been pretty decent. And so sometimes he's saying someone will give their life up to protect or defend another person they deem to be good. Sort of like the soldier falling on the grenade that is thrown in the trench to protect his friends from death. But the implication is, is that nobody, nobody is willing to give their life for a bad person. And yet that is exactly what God did through Christ. While we were still sinners, says Paul, while we were still God's enemies, Jesus died for us. He was the shield that took the place of the blow of God's holy judgment He suffered what we deserved as our substitute. And that's why we speak of Jesus' death being substitutionary, a substitutionary atonement for sinners. So verse 9 reads, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So here you're beginning to see this present reality of justification that came about through what Jesus did, giving us future hope because we are spared from that final judgment of God's wrath. Jesus has already absorbed it. He's already taken it. He's already dealt with it. And that's why he is the only way of justification before God. In Jesus' death, he puts to death that enmity that existed between us and God. And so verses 10 and 11, Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. What is reconciliation but the restoration and reestablishment of a proper relationship which had previously been lost? But here's the amazing thing, and this is what Paul is saying here in, in these verses, is the relationship we now have with God, this reconciled relationship, is better, is better than the relationship humanity had with God before sin came into the world. Because he says if Jesus' death has reconciled us to God, How much more will his life grant us in that relationship now with God? 
Because Jesus is alive. He is our living Savior. You see, before sin, when Adam, our representative, enjoyed that fellowship with God the Creator, he had to earn the right to everlasting life with God by keeping God's commandment to him. And of course, he didn't do that. He fell into sin in all humanity with him. But with Christ's death, with Christ's death, we are reconciled back to God. That relationship is restored. And not only that, that right to life, eternal life with God is already earned. Jesus has already done it. Jesus has secured the promise for us. We don't have to try to earn it because it's already been done. And Jesus' resurrection preaches to us that promise of life. What Adam could not do, Jesus did. He earned the reward of life, the glory of God forever. He secured our hope. And we have then what Adam didn't have. We have the reward of eternal life already earned for us in Jesus. So we have peace with God. We have access into His grace. And by Christ, we are reconciled back to God with a better relationship than we could ever have imagined. So what does that have to do then with suffering in this world and how we understand it? Well, here's the thing. Our peace with God that we have now in Christ, it changes how we see suffering. Before you were reconciled to God, suffering was a constant reminder to you that this world is not right. It proclaims that there is a separation between you and God. It preaches to you that, hey, you're God's enemy. You are at war with Him and this world is suffering because of it. All that you feel, the sorrow around you exists because of your rebellion, your long war against God. And as we observe many times, people look at suffering and view God with hatred. But after you are reconciled back to God through Christ, through the gospel, you begin to see suffering differently. As Paul says in verse 3, now, because you have peace with God, now you rejoice in your suffering. Now, of course, he doesn't mean you rejoice in the suffering Itself. As Christians, we don't go out and we don't seek suffering. We don't say, hit me with this hammer so I feel pain. No. But what Paul is getting at here is that we no longer need approach suffering with bitterness. But we can rejoice in what God has done and what he is doing. Suffering, he says, produces hope. Verses 3 through 4, he gives us this chain. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. See, through our suffering in God, his love, uh, through our suffering, our hope in God produces a greater hope in his love. It, It grows stronger. Our relationship with God doesn't grow further apart. It draws closer together. Because when we suffer, endurance grows. 
And endurance is simply faithfulness to God. It is perseverance, continuing in our faith. It's saying, yes, this world is fallen and broken and hurting. But I have something that makes all right again. I have that which restores my relationship to God. I have peace with Him. And so I'll keep believing Him even through this trial. Endurance knows that what we're experiencing is not the only reality in this world. In fact, it's only a temporal reality because Jesus has risen. He's already defeated death. And death is the greatest thing we can suffer. And from that endurance, says Paul, comes character. And that character that he's speaking of is genuineness of our faith, something that has been tested and proven true. It has gone through the fire and has shown that, hey, this faith is real. It is not fake. This person's confidence and hope and rest and dependence is completely on me. And it got through this time of suffering. It endured. It lasted. And that's the kind of faith that results then in the peace with God and access to His grace and a reconciled relationship with Him. And from that endurance, says Paul, comes hope. With that hope, we are not ashamed. We are not ashamed by our suffering. You see, before you are united to Jesus through faith, there is shame and suffering. Because it tells you constantly that you sinned. And there is no hope. And you can't make this world better. Go ahead and try. It'll just get harder and more difficult and more sorrowful because you're an enemy with God. But when you are united to Christ, suffering changes its message. It now proclaims to you that, yes, this world has fallen, but now you have a hope. You have a hope that is yours in Christ. Now you are a friend of God. And suffering tells you by confirming the genuineness of your faith that you are loved by God, that He has poured it out into the vessel of your heart through the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. Suffering proves that you are God's child when you go through it and endure it patiently by the grace of God. It produces hope. So you see, this great truth of justification by faith alone isn't just a theoretical exercise in theology. It's not just a future hope, but it also has a present reality, something that helps you endure life in this world. It makes it possible to rejoice even when life is at its hardest and most difficult. I know that many of us here have suffered in ways great and small. Many of us are suffering through things right now. And we are all tempted, myself included, to blame God for that. To blame God for our suffering. But if we do, we're listening to the wrong message that suffering is proclaiming and trying to teach us. We're failing to see the present reality of the gospel And the hope it gives because we have been reconciled back to our God. Yes, suffering is bitter. 
But it's a cup of bitterness that Jesus himself drank. And he drank deeply from. He understands what we are going through. And because of that, when we are united to him, our suffering no longer says, you are at enmity with God. It says, no, you are his friend, his child. One day this will all end. And so we can rejoice. We can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful that you have shown us again and again that you have reconciled us back to you. You have made us your children when once we were your enemies. And though we not deserving of this, you did it anyway through Christ our Lord. And it's for this that we have peace with you and we rest in the hope of this promise. And so when we suffer, I pray that you would remind us of this hope, that you remind us that the trials and hardships that we go through are only but temporal, for you are doing a great work in us and through us. We do not have to fear your judgment, your condemnation, because we stand forgiven in Christ. We have been reconciled through him, and we praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.